Welcome to Inspired Surfers on Wavelength Community Radio in partnership with Jimmy's Iced Coffee. In this episode, Jim is in conversation with Dr. Dave. Founder of SurfAid, Dave had a life-changing moment on a boat trip in the Mentawis when he realised the truth behind the Paradise Palm Tree Curtains. For the last 20 years, he has dedicated his life to improving the health, well-being and self-reliance of people living in isolated regions across Indonesia. Dr. Dave Jenkins, the man, the myth, the legend behind SurfAid, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. We're hiding down here on the east coast of uh, New Zealand. We've got uh, a winter fast approaching, so I've just bought a new 4-3 wetsuit, but the waves are... The waves are looking pretty good today, so after this I'll be jumping into the um, the rather cold water, but nothing to you strong uh, English people are used to it. We're not. So are you, you, are you going to have to cancel this whole call very quickly if you suddenly see it pick up out of your window, I guess? <laughs> no, I won't, do, I won't do that to you, Jim. There'll be waves all day according to uh, <laughs> mag- magic seaweed, so hopefully they're right. Rock and roll. What 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 kind of wave have you got out of your window, and how far away is it? Make us all jealous, please, while you can. Well, yeah, actually, if you ever get a chance to the listeners, come to a place called Makarori. It's uh, about five miles north of Gisborne, up the east coast of New Zealand. And it's Gisborne's well known to be a surf area in New Zealand, but I live on the sixty sixty little uh, we call it the village, sixty houses, and there's a northern reef break. I'm looking out right now that can break for two hundred meters. A left-hander with a big southerly swell, um, oh. and uh, it, but uh, but here's the downside: it only breaks about ten times a year, and but it's um, so that's at the northern end. But then you look right down. I'm looking down about two kilometres of Macquarie Beach, and we have a seven or eight uh, sand-on reef bars with a with a Macquarie Point, which is quite famous, um, at the other end, and so we have uh, just about a four to five foot swell running. We've got peculiar weather like everyone in the world is having. We're having northerly cyclone swells, which we normally get in March. But so yes, there's there's a there's around forty breaks around Gisborne. So it's a quite a rich area for surfing. So and and the locals are good and it's also one of New Zealand's wine centres. So this the Chard they grow great Chardonnays here. So if you like Chardonnay and surfing, come on down. Quids in, man. That sounds great. That sounds very cool. So, um, what what time in the morning are we are we at at the uh, moment? Where seven, you are? seven o'clock in the morning. Oh well, rock and roll. Well, thank thank you for uh, for setting your alarm and and getting up to have a quick chat. And I I do understand that if you if you do days off, um, it's only purely because the surf is is so good and you're mind surfing and uh, <laughs> not for any other reason. <laughs> No, I, I, I don't mind people having days off. I think it's a very good idea. I think <laughs> well, most, that, most, <laughs> most of the damage in the world has been done by people who are overly ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, so this is really, really cool to, to have, have you on um, this Wavelength podcast, and, it, and it's a pleasure to be able to chat to you, and thanks again so much for your time so far. Um, so can you can you give us a bit of a background on SurfAid? So this was a, a 1999 trip to the, I mean, I call it the Mentawis, you call it the Mentawise, is that right? You're probably correct, Mentawise. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it because you've been there. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a, we won't get stuck on that. Call it what you like. Um, Mentawai, 
Tawis, Mint, you know, doesn't matter. It's um, whatever. So uh, yeah, so I, you know, I've, everyone knows it's it's dubbed the Disneyland of surfing, and um, yeah, I went there chasing those perfect waves. And you were, um, was that one of the first trips you did out there, or have you been? Have you have you returned there for the tenth time? Oh no, it was the first trip. I'd been wanting to go for years. I'd seen all the vids and photos, and but I was working in uh, Singapore. So my dream was to sail the world. Everyone knows the Kiwis have got this weird genetic mutation from probably not having any ozone, and um, we've we're peculiarly good sailors. So. As a Kiwi boy, you grow up uh, given a little P-class yacht, and then you you keep going. So I was, I'm a I'm a ardent uh, sailor as well. So my dream was to sail the world, and I'm kind of selling my soul to the corporate uh, dollar. I had a big job in a in a large multinational, saving money and um, to buy a yacht and sail the world. But I uh, went had a holiday. And said, "Right, let's do it. We're we're an hour and a half flight away from Indonesia, so let's go." So, called up some friends, and we off we went. And just going back to your dream of a of a sail trip around the world, would that have been um, a, a monohull, or would you have gone catamaran on that, or anything no, else? For no, that no, matter? definitely catamaran. I had a uh, small catamaran um, in New Zealand. We used to sail around. It's definitely the place to go. You can. You can outrun a storm half the time with the modern weather system predictions and mm-hmm. um, much more stable for your uh, lady partner who's probably got seasickness. <laughs> so <laughs> if, you, if you want to uh, not be completely alone or you're taking someone who's got a bit of seasickness, they're much better. Yes, it's the other way around for me. I, I did a, a sailing trip. We went to Oz a few years ago with my lady, and um, we bumped into an old this old dude and his son who were sailing their catamaran, I think, for the third time around Australia, and we met them in um, Apollo, Apollo Bay on the Great Ocean Road, and um, they invited us on board his catamaran, and it was, it was my wife or my girlfriend who was actually the good sailor, and I was kind of just lying there watching the horizon trying not to hurl. <laughs> um, but didn't hurl, and we made it across the Great Australian Bight, which was a 1,100 Ooh. nautical mile trip. Fairly, yep. fairly hairy. Yeah. But um, yeah, absolutely amazing fun. So, is, is has that has that dream been fulfilled in any way, shape, or form yet? No, still... nor, nor will it probably. I still will. I want to do some blue ocean sailing, but um, yeah, things got a rather got rather distracted by this surf aid mission. So. Yeah, but I mean that's probably a, a, that's one of the greatest distractions I'd imagine. I mean, it sounds amazing what you got, what you guys have done so far. Yeah, no, it has. It's been very, very re- rewarding in its own way. Um, yeah. Have you have you heard? Have you heard just while you're just talking about um, kind of uh, the Kiwis into sailing and stuff? Have you have you heard of a guy called Tom Neal who wrote a book called An Island to Oneself? No, I'm writing that down. It's a, it's a, it's a great book, obviously, by this guy called Tom Neal, um, with an E on the end of Neal. It's N-E-A-L-E. And um, he goes to, the, to an island in the South Pacific called Suvorov, I think it's called. And he lives there for seven years um, with a small break in between. And it's just an absolutely beautiful account of his life um, on this island. And uh, he has random 
drops off drops of product from the navy they drop them a newspaper and a, and a loaf of bread one day via helicopter um <laughs> he, fall, he falls in love with a duck um and has shark encounters and all these other kind of things but it's it's an amazing book so if you if you can get a hold of a copy which are very very rare um definitely oh. definitely have a read it's really really cool okay thanks for that um yeah so so we'll we'll just crack on with the with the surf with the um surf aid thing so um can you can you give us an idea of how it all started post this this first trip that you did? So during the like how it started during the trip. Yeah, like what what was it? What was it that you what what was it that happened on your first trip? That, oh, okay, um, so that we pulled. Yeah, we pulled into the keyhole at uh, HTs. So that's the famous right hander, um, and hollow trees. It's called, and I think it's voted top wave in the top 10 waves of the world most years um mm-hmm. and yeah we we actually got it pretty good i've still got scar i've got lots of scars from hollow trees there's a thing called the surgeon's table that if you fall off you get washed over this coral and and it's the most impossible you can't get off there's just some kind of weird surge that just holds you on the surgeon's table so Fun. you get cut up very badly so i've got quite a number of scars at least seven or eight scars from but anyway we got we got it on pretty nice like four to five foot hollow barrels and um we were sitting on the at lunchtime sitting on the deck and you don't see any village you just see palm trees it's the keyhole goes right into about 50 meters from the beach and you can look back at the wave it's it's particularly good for taking photographs. And then I just saw kids on the beach. So I thought, oh, I said to my mate, look, look at those kids there. There must be a village. And we went and I said, let's go and see how, they, how they're living, what's going on. So I had a translator there, uh, a guy with a surf guide who was also could speak Indonesian. And, but we couldn't actually land a little boat straight on because the swell was running so big it was dumping. We had to take the boat about a kilometre down the beach, land uh, in the protection of the reef, and then walk back in a little track towards the village. And just as we were about to enter the village, we saw the graveyard onto the right, like literally three feet the graves were starting from the track. And I looked at it and there were fresh, very, very small gra- graves, obviously infants and young children. And there were yeah. lot, there were lots of them. So I, I said to the translator, "Come on, let's go and find out why these children are dying." So we started asking questions, and um, and the word got around the village very quickly. Um, there was this large Kiwi sweaty white man asking questions, and um, the chief turned up and said, "Hello, you're the first doctor who's ever come to this. Why do you want to know?" And I explained, "Would you run a clinic?" So I said, yeah, okay, I could do what we, you know, whatever I can to help. And the thing is about most doctors, I think, surfing doctors who go on these trips quickly learn that their friends expect them to be able to perform mild, you know, minor neurosurgery if something goes wrong. (laughs) Ridiculous expectation. But given that, that's quite a consistent thing, at least amongst my friends. I uh, always carried a rather large medical bag, so I was quite well equipped to to help what I thought would be half a dozen people. It was only a small village, 
So about two hours later, we went back to the boat, went back, and there was a couple of hundred people waiting. The whole village turned up. And anyway, that afternoon, we, we sort of came up against what we all know is happening in the world, just children um, really wasted with febrile, anemic, um, and having talking to them, they were suffering from recurrent malaria. When you examine a child with recurrent malaria, you'll often feel their spleen because their spleen is enlarged because it's um, it's having to compensate for all the dead and dying red blood cells that their malaria is causing. And so you can feel these spleens, and there's only real, well, there's only a few reasons for it, and it's recurrent malaria. And then just talking to them, we, we realized at the end of the day that, uh, that these diseases were largely preventable, that there was children dying in, what, in childbirth, women were dying in childbirth, that they weren't doing the basics. They were washing. They were quite proud people. They were quite clean. Um, perhaps their clothes weren't as clean as out by our standards, but um, they do. They did have soap, and they but they weren't using it properly. And mm. uh, and so they were malnourished too. Even though it was tropical paradise and there was food growing all over the place, it was clear they weren't giving their children the right kinds of micronutrients and. and uh, the diet could be improved. So when you put that mix together of hygiene, sanitation, malaria, and nutrition, you um, quickly realize that most of these deaths and suffering were preventable. So we went back to the yacht, and it had been a, quite a celebratory uh, yacht as a, a surf trip, as often they are. And mm. um, But, yeah, it was a very somber night. I always remember that night. And because a lot, all of all my mates who came come in and witnessed this thing, and oh, yeah, um, so you weren't you weren't the only one coming back, kind of worried, and everyone else was partying. No. They'd all come to see it, so that, that's no, that, a good thing. Yeah, they'd all come. One one of my friends who I thought was particularly burly had to leave. He kind of turned the various shades of green and said, oh, "I can't handle this," and left because there were oh, man. there were kind of like fungating boils and and. One woman brought to me semi-conscious in a wheelbarrow. She died later that night, so she had pneumonia. And um, people coughing with tuberculosis. And I mean, that I don't want to paint the wrong picture. There were healthy kids as well running around on the beach. But obviously they brought their sickest out to see if anything we could do anything for them. So we were, we were seeing the most, the most ill of the group. So there was tuberculosis there as well. Um, so, yeah, so it all painted a rather dim picture, but it, at least it explained uh, why the graveyards were full. And mm. um, we just sort of sat around going, well, I don't know what we can do. We we can't speak this language. There's no roads. There's no telephones. We're at that. We dubbed it the edge of the planet. It's so remote. Um, you know, 20 years ago, there were, it's not like today, there was better infrastructure and a better transport. Um, so it would seem like an, an impossible task. And uh, so we just sort of sat on it and carried on doing our surf charter. But it did, it just kind of, yeah, I had a few sleepless nights um, thinking about, well, would it be possible to get, you know, help these people change their behaviors, which is what it all comes down to in the end. And um, maybe it was possible, and if I felt this way, maybe a few others would feel that way. And 
at the time, you know, all the large surf companies were doing recurrent videos, and there was even a surf competition about, you know, with Oki and all sorts of the big surfers at the time. Um, mm. So they were clearly enjoying the islands, and I thought, well, maybe they could give back a little bit. And so, yeah, we started formulating the possibility of, of starting some kind of charity to address these issues. And it just slowly took hold of me. And, um, yeah, and it became something I just couldn't let go. So it, after about a week of that gnawing at me, I said, okay, we're going to have to do it because otherwise I'm not going to be able to live with myself. Um, yeah. And so how, what was the kind of feeling like when obviously you bring your bag back from the boat that's got, in, you know, medical kit in it, but obviously not enough to help 200, 200 people. And you kind of have to walk off and go, I'll be back um, kind of thing. And that, I guess that feeling is, is, isn't a great one. And then obviously you're, you, you are really there to surf, but you've stumbled across something that is uh, apparently a problem that you want to want to help out. I guess, you know, surfing for the rest of that trip must've been, kind of slightly deflating even if it was on point every day um yeah no it was certainly a it, it certainly changed the tone of the trip but but particularly for me because <laughs> by that stage i was sort of uh seriously considering what we could do about it the others weren't uh, although they were sympathetic um and i had my girlfriend with me at the time and you know we were in a partnership together and I said to her, well, would you be prepared to uh, leave your corporate cushy job as I would and come and start an aid organization? And she said, yes. And so it was starting to look like, well, we could give it a, we could give it a go. Mm. And, um, but look, you know, I think I don't take away, and I, you know, the indulgence of a surf trip. It's one of the best things that surfers can do, and I encourage it. I mean, go out there into the world and find beautiful waves. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, we're still going to secret spots in Indonesia and searching. And um, I don't think, you know, that's just the reality of life, isn't it? We're very, very fortunate, yeah. very, very fortunate people to have that capacity to do that. And I don't, I don't want anyone to feel guilty. I don't feel guilty about it. Um, it's just whether you also, as part of your life, want to give back something significant. That's really yeah. Cool. No, that's that's super cool. And, and are you? Um, would you? Were you the only doctor on that trip? And yeah. all of your buddies are, do other professions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, you obviously had that in your blood from a very early. Did you always want to be a doctor when you were even younger? Uh, yeah, so doctors generally, when you interview them, they know half of them know when they're they want to be a doctor when they're a kid. Um, they are about twenty five percent of them do it because they're you know the, it's in the family, so they don't have much choice. <laughs> they go, they, <laughs> and uh, you know about twenty five percent of them kind of stagger into it for whatever reason they have. So yeah, I was one of the early ones. I always found it. Um, uh, just a very inspiring thing to 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 want to do. So that's what I did. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, you've obviously had it in your in your blood from from an early age of actually just wanting to help people because that's 
That's what doctors do, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually, because um, my father had all the Albert Schweitzer books. I don't know if you know about Albert Schweitzer, but he was probably the first. He was one no. of, so he's a, um, I think he was English. He was the first, one of the first sort of serious uh, um, in Africa to build hospitals and to try and address some of the health problems there. But he was a bit of a philosopher. And in fact, he and a very good musician, he raised money for his hospitals over there by doing concerts throughout Europe. Um, but he wrote these books. And I remember at the age of 12, Dad, Dad showed me these books and I started reading them and I was just completely hooked about the adventures of this guy in the middle of nowhere. And, wow. um, and that, that's really what inspired me. But I hadn't taken on that work up until that point. So, yeah, it seemed to have come full circle um, that I ended up doing the kind of work that had inspired me to become a doctor. Amazing. How did you first start out? I mean, how, how do you come up with a name like Surfade? Obviously, it's, it's kind of self-explanatory, really. Um, but did, did you come up with a name? And then uh, and you obviously got a couple of, of your friends on board to help start it up. And then how did, how did you pick the right guys that you knew you, that would come on this journey with you? And how did that all come about? Well, I chose two friends because they had proven to me on repetitive times to be able to forgive my faults. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I knew that I had a, 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 some rather large deficits when it comes to um, my skill base. And, and so I'm not, you know, not a particularly good manager and I'm not particularly, um, uh, what would we say? Uh, I'm not good on spreadsheets, for example. Um, and so, uh, these guys, I came back to Gisborne, New Zealand and explained the situation and they'd both been to the islands and, and, um, and they just had a very nice combination of skills. And I said, look, if I'm prepared to do this would you join and help me? And, and it was kind of a, you know, do or do not moment. Um, and they said yes. And that, that's what really changed the situation because I realized that, okay, the school base was now dramatically improved. Um, mm -hmm. And together, doing it together would also be something that would be very bonding and or it could also cause div divorce in the friendship, which it almost ha has a number of times. Um, and so I said, they said yes. So I said, okay, I've got some school base, and let's go about doing it. Um, and but it took a long time to get started. You know, we had to register a nonprofit, and then um, do all the materials and websites and marketing materials, and then try to raise money. And that was, you know, I had no idea about fundraising. So we made some pretty big errors. And, um, you know, I think one of the biggest errors was selling $2 um, tattoos, surfeit tattoos to drunk teenagers at rock concerts. And around oh, this is, this is your big day out excursion. Yeah, yeah I take big it. day out. They always, <laughs> no one had ever heard of surfeit, so they always put us near the punk rock band. And uh, you'd be trying to tell people about dying kids to drunk teenagers, and it was just a complete. And they just want to slap the tattoo on their on their yeah. bum, no doubt. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we lost money. So we kept having to balance the books with our own funds, but um, eventually, a uh, we found a 
a, a donor who was willing to cut us a check to do a trial mosquito net program. And so we went, wow, okay, well, if we're going to do this at all, we just have to commit. And that's when I sold my house and lived on the savings and just flew up to Sumatra and got to know local surf industry and went out there and started living, learned the language, lived on the floors and, um, you know, started really learning about what it would take to to work with the local people. So um, mosquito nets are primarily the most important thing. Like I've, I've just obviously had a little look at your website and um, it says that you guys have supplied over 60,000 um, kind of impregnated with, I don't know, what's it called? Like repellent, I guess, mosquito, mosquito nets yeah. across Sumatra. Yeah, perithrum. Yeah, so, so at that time, it was just becoming technically possible. The biggest problem with malaria control was you'd had to re-soak your nets with the insecticide every six months. But at, right. at that time, they were coming up with um, making the nylon with the insecticide inside of it so it slowly releases. So now, even now, I think they're up to seven or eight years these nets can last. So it's a dramatic change. And um, we <laughs> we got sobered up about things quite quickly because we imported some nets and then the customs wanted this big payment and they got held up for like five months in Padang. We just couldn't, oh, we just could not believe that they would do this, that that was like, you know, so we came, we started to learn how to run the, the show politically. Eventually we got someone to order them to be released. We went to see the governor and, and they were released. But, um, but this was a major breakthrough in the technology of malaria control because what happens, it's, it's a nighttime biting mosquito. And if you get enough of these nets up, they create like a halo of protection. And the mosquito will come in and, and they'll, they'll smell the perithrin, the, the insecticide, and they'll go away and decide to bite a, another, you know, like a rat. or the, the pregnant female mosquito is looking for blood for for their babies, so to speak, and um, but they you you can create a complete collapse of the malaria transmission in a village if you get enough of these mosquito nets up. So, mm -hmm. and that's what we did, but um, we failed on the first attempt because I just handed them out and gave a little speech at church, and and they started using them as chicken pens and fishing nets and. And that was really the, the that was really the first um, biggest mistake and the but the biggest thing one of the best things that happened to us because we had to sober up and say well we don't really understand about good community development and behaviour change so we changed our complete approach and we started asking questions and learning the language getting better at the language and started to talk to some of the leaders and ask them how they would approach it rather than coming in with our, you know, the white guy on the horse um, to solve the, save the day, uh, get really down and dirty and, and, you know, really understand the culture and the barriers to behavior change. What are they thinking? What are they, why don't they, well, it turns out they thought malaria came from coconut juice. Um, or forest spirits, and so why would a mosquito net help them? Right. So, is it all right to go back to um, 
let's go back to the the, the sixty thousand nets that you that you guys have got, and then how you kind of um, got the, the the usage of them um, up from ten percent up to eighty five percent or ninety five percent. So yeah, like the big lesson we learned was when we found that they were being used as a fishing net. Um, was that you have to change your whole perception about how to help people. So it's all about generating the motivation to help themselves, to help the people, and then giving them some kind of structure, which is, you know, what a behavior change structure. And so mm-hmm. we ask them, what would it take? What do your people respond to? What do they love? What do they like to do? What would they come and engage in, and they said drama and song. And so I said, okay, here are the facts. Malaria is spread by a nighttime biting mosquito. Young children and pregnant women are particularly uh, vulnerable. And if we can get everyone under a mosquito net, it's gonna create this protective halo around your village. And so they, you know, they came up with this malaria drama and they got so engaged that the chief wanted to be the lead role and put a pillow in, <laughs> put a pillow in and cross dressed as a pregnant woman and the other leaders all made these masks with long noses and looked like a mosquito and started attacking you know people fell over dying and then the, we'd bring in a mosquito net and then mosquitoes couldn't get in and the mosquitoes died from the insecticide and so yeah it was a it was about a 10 to 15 minute drama. Um, and yeah, they just loved it. And it was a complete turnaround. Um, and then after we we sort of did questionnaires to find out whether they'd actually learned what caused malaria and would they use a mosquito net, we had this great response. So we started using that. And, and the Mentawai is a, around about 200 small villages, some deep in the forest. We've got actually got amazing footage of our staff lugging these mosquito nets through through virgin tropical rainforest to these villages. Wow. Um, but but the same deal, you know, they just all love the drama and song. And, and uh, when we did the parasite tests, uh, in six months we had around a 70% reduction in malaria parasite levels. And you know, the people suddenly realized how effective they were because when you're in a a malaria endemic area, there's always some kid uh, sitting in a house with a fever and shaking. And and when that slows down, it becomes very apparent to the village that things are improving from a malaria perspective. They didn't know what it was caused, but they knew the syndrome of, you know, two, two to three weeks of putting you to bed and shaking a fever that would come and go and um, and so, yeah, they got very, very keen on those nets and uh, started to use them. And so we took that, yeah, so to around, we made it to around 195 villages out of the 200. Did, did you have to um, fill in the role as the village chief and, uh, and cross-dress yourself? Oh, no, no, no. See, that would go against the philosophy because it's about them helping themselves. Um, yeah. So it's always a matter of each village choosing who they would want to play in the drama. And it, our role was just explaining it to them. And 
giving them some guidance about the facts and, you know, the drama had to include these particular things about the nighttime biting mosquito, etc. And then so each village was a little bit different, the drama. They would suit it to their own culture. I mean, there's different, there's four different dialects in the Mentawai there, you know, so wow. each village is a little different. So there was an adjustment, but as long as the messages were in there, then it was equally effective. I guess, you know, even without um, language, you can still portray that through 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 theatre and dance, can't you? Absolutely. And that's the thing that, you know, this is a culture that a lot of the, and 20 years ago, there wasn't, a lot of the villages didn't have schools. Um, there wasn't clear, not everyone could read and write. And so through song and dance and drama was the way to communicate. So, and what was it like with, with regards to technology back then? Because you wouldn't really be able to have a smartphone to show, you know, the next island or the next village what just happened in the theatre back, you know, in, in the theatre in the previous village. How, how did you guys kind of get about doing that? Well, that, that, that's, I guess, you know, one of the skill sets that we learned was how to codify and sort of learn how to scale up that principle that was so effective um, mm. and that's what we trained our staff to do so they had a process to go through you know you arrive in a village you talk to the chief um, you talk to the, you find out who the influences are every community has people that influence um, you, you you bring those people together um, you've got your letter from the government saying what it's all about and giving their endorsement and mm -hmm. and then you find out whether the village wants to do it. I mean, uh, we've we've kind of got a tough love approach sometimes, not so much with the malaria, but we can talk about it later. But with our mother child program, we've learned to spend a lot of time up front discussing our philosophy of you've got to help yourself. We're not going to hand out mosquito nets are the only thing that we've really handed out except in the tsunami post tsunami scenario um, and this is about you helping yourselves and so if, as long as they're willing to accept the philosophy of the assistance we're offering then we proceed so yeah our staff were well trained in, in the process and what mm -hmm. to do and, and really it's about mobilizing the community's assets and leadership um, and capacity, and you know, there's certain ways to do that, and that's what we got. We got and are very good at. It's kind of what we're specialised in. Did Did you find that you were making some really great headway before the the tsunami struck, and then it kind of it starts all over again? Or you've got you've got obviously got brand new issues on your hands. Can you Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we'd honed that malaria drama. We'd got the parasite. Net, uh, rates down the malaria rates were going down dramatically and we'd had around we had about 20 staff because to take to 200 villages and i remember billabong sponsored gave us um very generously a lot of money and we managed to scale it up to the entire mentawai uh, archipelago and then the tsunami hit <clears throat> and it was just fortunate it was off season so i was actually flew back to New Zealand to spend Christmas with my two daughters 
because um, I hadn't seen a hell, whole lot of, of them during mm. that fir- first uh, four years. And then the phone call started coming in from kind of major, uh, the head of, head of um, the aid, New Zealand aid at the time, and saying, you know, Dave, you are the only registered international aid organisation we have up there. Wow. Could you could you mobilise an emergency response? So we made a few phone calls, and everyone was keen to do it. And and we made a few phone calls to some of the owners of the surf charter boats, and they are all everyone was keen to help. Um, and so New Zealand government. Uh, gave us some money and said, "Get up there and, you know, put together a proposal about how you're going to help people." And it just turned out we had a complete niche because none of the larger agencies knew how to operate in these remote islands, right from, you know, way up from Nias and up to Similu and the Banyaks, all the way down to the southern tip of the Mentawai. No one knew how to operate and what was happening with the reefs and who was da- who what the damage was so <clears throat> we were we chartered half a dozen boats and we grew from 20 staff to over 100 staff in in about 6 weeks we I mean we and uh, it was just just madness really but we managed to send out the first fleet um, to give people you know basic food and shelter and do reports of what was happening in the islands, which was, you know, mm. information. Information was really the most important thing. Where no one knew who was devastated, where we needed the help. So um, then we did a second wave of disease prevention program because, as you know, the biggest risk is an epidemic breakout. And these villages had already had measles epidemics and obviously malaria. And so we ran clinics as well as emergency supplies and shelter. We gathered up four or five different units with doctors and nurses and drugs and and vaccines, thousands of vaccines. And we vaccinated everyone against malaria, um, tetanus, and um, distributed more mosquito nets, food and shelter over about a thousand kilometers of the most remote areas in that in that area and there wasn't a disease outbreak in our area so it was a you know extreme success considering the real high probability of a disease outbreak we managed to uh, prevent that Um, and so that really built surf aid sort of international reputation and you know (laughs) a lot of people going who is this bunch of surfers doing this work and so professionally with all these professional reports and um you know documenting everything so effectively that they could tell you exactly which village received what and what the malaria rates were and there were a lot of questions (laughs) um and because people you know had a bias that a bunch of surfers could never really pull up pull off becoming an international aid organization so it was um, a pleasure to prove those doubters wrong. And I mean, just a just a random question on that, like um, with the surf charters, that they did they all manage to es- escape the tsunami, bearing in mind that they are in the water twenty four seven. Well, yeah, they did because it was off season, right? November, uh, December the twenty fourth, right. 
they were either um, in harbour in Padang, they do their repairs on their boats at that time. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, so that uh, to, my, to my memory, there was none of them that were damaged in the tsunami. Um, With um, when when you're actually getting aid to a remote island, for example, um, typically you're you're gonna you will you will learn the reef pass um, just through surfing, I guess, but then also trying to access the beach. I mean, even as you said earlier, um, you couldn't actually get a boat to the shore um, when you first went to go and see these vi- these um, these these village people. So you had to kind of go down the beach a kilometer um, to get out of the surf. Was it kind of hard? There must have been some situations that were quite tricky because reefs would have been smashed. So you have to find a new route in and then you can damage boats and risk actually getting product to people and stuff. Is, are those the kind of things that happened? And what, what are the kind of, uh, coupled with that, what other um, fresh obstacles did you guys come across? Because there must have been hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely up by Nias, the reefs have, had risen out of the ocean. And wow. it was peculiar uh situation so yeah the you know for some of the captains that had been there for years and years it was quite a perilous to navigate in uh and we weren't quite sure which of the reef passes were still passable but um yeah so that was a big deal but uh yeah we still managed to do that just by using their, you know, incredible skill and sending out the small boats just to have a look at the reefs and see whether the whether where 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 you could get through. And fortunately, mm. you know, that's the off season, so the swells aren't usually as big um during that time. So yeah. that, that made it uh more feasible. But and yeah how, that, how quickly how how quickly were you able to mobilize from you know from from that boxing day um how many days or weeks did it take for you guys to just be landing on the shore ready to start reporting um and educating and medicating oh um it was a couple of weeks amazing yeah uh, we had um and in the, we've done four emergency responses too now. Obviously, there's been other earthquakes and tsunamis there. And we mm-hmm. had, um, it was just local knowledge. So we had a friend who who really knew where all the supplies were in Padang. And I, mm-hmm. I, felt, I felt a bit sorry for the larger agencies who came to town and went, well, where are the tents and shovels and food? Just, oh, Surfade's got them. Um, we would, <laughs> yeah, these are ours. Go and get your own. Yeah, we were just able to secure. He was a bit of a trader, and he just had all the phone numbers of the big providers. And so we just had the boats there, the materials, and it was like, okay, pile on in, we're off. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, to do it professionally, it did take, um, I, I can't give you the exact days, but it would have been a couple of weeks to to mobilize and to get all the supplies and to get up there. Well, well done to you guys. Mm. How, how do you, how do you do? And, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but you know, that you must've seen some fairly, um, you know, hectic things, even from your first day on that, on, on the Island at Lance's right, um, where you see the lady in the wheelbarrow who sadly passed away that night. You know, that's not, that's not a, that's not a cool thing to witness. Um, first hand and then you've obviously got the tsunami 
um, a number of years later. Um, you know, d- does it affect your sleep and, and mental health and anxiety and stuff like that? And do you look after yourself for those kind of things? Because these are all these are all pretty big things, aren't they? Yeah, I, I'm sure I've got some friends and family that suspect that it's affected my mental health. But um, no, I mean, definitely that was an issue that came up through years of just grind. I mean, this is a, you know, when you take on helping people at the at the edge of the planet, I mean, international aid is already challenging doing it properly, especially the behavior change, the way we do it. But then you yeah. add the extreme isolation and that and the logistics. It is very challenging, and it's fair to say it's taken a large um, a, a toll um, during that time, and yeah, my health definitely suffered, but it had to suffer in order to realize that hey, I got to do something about this. So I, um, you know, rather than rely on too many bintangs um, to get to sleep, I started meditating and right. I improved my diet. And um, so yeah, I've I'm much I'm probably healthier now than I was during the peak of that crazy times so yeah that's something that um you know you kind of suffer first and then you realize it takes that low point to go hey this is i can't help more people if if i myself are not able to get up in the morning and be able to work a 12-hour day yeah it's a a big thing yeah yeah you do have to take care of yourself and that that became you know, a recognizable issue amongst all of us. And we would talk about it and make sure we we're all on our game after a while. But it took a few years to realize that we needed to do that. Yeah, I think most people, when they start doing these kind of things, they think they're indestructible. And then a a, 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 a big emotional wave will come and smack them in the face, excuse the pun. And they realize, oh, actually, I'm I'm actually just like a, a human, like the rest of these people. Um, and I need to look after myself in order to keep this ship the ship sailing yeah you certainly um carry images with you like uh, and in moments of deep sadness um mm. and so i can you know just comes to mind is after the the tsunami in the mentor in 2010 i'd been in a village talking to the chief about our community health program literally three days beforehand a, a and then we went back it was completely wiped out and we Man. we were the first, you know we just arrived um, a day after the tsunami, and you know just interviewing people, interviewing a father who had lo- just lost his wife and two kids, um, and he'd survived. And the villagers were still trying to find dead babies that had been washed into the forest, and going with them to actually find them. Um, you know those kind of moments. Uh, yeah, so you just have to acknowledge them, I think, and uh, yeah. and they were very emotionally, they were very powerful emotional moments. But you can, you know, I would try and just channel that energy into motivation to do more and to keep going. Yeah. And um, and that was an interesting phenomenon. That 2010 tsunami in Mentawai, we had about. Uh, something like 20 people die in our villages where we'd run an emergency preparedness program and there was Mm. 400 died in the other villages. So it just showed you the impact of good education 
um, you know, there was only just a few died, like I said, in our villages because they all knew we'd had trained them to go to the village that an earthquake where you couldn't stand up that lasted more than 20 seconds was likely to create a tsunami. So they had built tracks up into the hills where they had were prepared to build shelter. And, and by the time wow. we got to them with more shelter and food, they were already, you know, in, in these little huts that they'd built because they knew how to do it up in the hills. Um, mm. That's incredible, Dave. Mm. So that was an unfortunate, uh, obviously, for the 400 that died, it was very unfortunate, but it was a very powerful demonstration of what a good program can do. Yeah, and that's that's all down to, to, to you and, you know, the founders and the rest of your team that have done it. And uh, uh, the, the the two the two friends that you brought on are they are they still part of it and 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 how are you still part of it in a big way or are you um what what else is on your kind of life menu right so yeah the two other uh phil and steve are still here we're still friends um through it all Woo-hoo! and uh good friends and in fact um tomorrow we're going to a um an auction for a couple of local artists that are uh, auctioning off two paintings at their opening of their new exhibition for Surf Aid. So we're, cool. we'll, we'll raise a couple of thousand dollars uh, tomorrow doing that through through their contacts. I um, have, have pulled back um, so that I'm still very much involved and I still, you know, do these kind of things and tell grisly stories um, of, uh, of various things. But the day-to-day management, we've always wanted it to be in the hands of Indonesians, not not expats. Um, yeah. we're still, I we're guess still, this comes back to giving people the, the power to, to do this thing themselves. Exactly. And, you yeah. know, there, there's lots of talented people um, in Indonesia. It was just about us having to get the training systems, the quality assurance systems to make sure that And building a culture, I think that's the most successful thing we've done, is we've built a culture of caring, but also a focus on the mission, which was to truly uh, document a dramatic reduction in childhood suffering and death and maternal suffering and death. So that commitment to that quality and building a culture where each staff member is helping each other to achieve that. And we're not just, Mm. you know, going through the motions. I think that's our greatest success. And so because we've done that, we've been able to bring in more Indonesians at the top level of management. And so really there's only, um, we have a part-time um, aid consultant who was our who was our community manager who, or country director, but now really just um, provides some oversight to that. And then our mm-hmm. board, our boards and myself you know, our job is to make sure we don't make any mistakes twice and to introduce new science, for example, um, if we know about new technology that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, and we're doing that. We're the first um, project now we're doing in, in um, Sumba is some solar power micro agriculture programs uh, with new, okay. techno- new technology to get people through the hungry, they call it the hungry season, which lasts for seven or eight months where it's so dry in eastern Indonesia. 
Wow. So, yeah, so we're moving on, and so we introduced those new ideas and discussed with our team. But I've started an online health program um, with, we're working with a professor, Bredesen, in San Francisco, which is the first set of protocols to stabilize Alzheimer's disease. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we, yeah, we just published 100 cases of reversal of Alzheimer's disease without drugs. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's very uh, cutting edge, and we're not perceived yet as acceptable to mainstream medicine, but there is a trial going on right now, which I expect will make a difference. Well, and good so, luck with that. Yeah, yeah, so it's pretty impressive. We're using um, kind of modern technology to discover what's going wrong with people's metabolism, but also ancient, um, some ancient herbs from India, Bacopa and ginsengs and things like that, that have, the professor has proved that can work and make a difference to improve people's brain function. So mm-hmm. um, I'm doing that uh, with my partner. And um, that's very engaging and um, very challenging as well. But we're, we, also, we also are still very much involved in surf aid. Amazing. Well, it's it kind of brings it to a little bit of an end where I've got just a couple more questions for you, which is, um, I mean, you, you've obviously spent an enormous amount of time in the land of some of the best surf in the entire world. Have you got a, have you got a top top three waves of all time that were, you know, kind of like a desert island disc? So if you could only have three waves to surf for the rest <laughs> of your life, what would they be? Um, one would be macaronis. Um, a lot of people know that, and then it's rated one of the best left-handers in the world too. Are you, are you a goofy footer, Dave? Yeah, I am. And yeah. so uh, macaronis is just the most incredible way. Right? It's just machine-like. You can surf it in howling onshores and still have fun. Um, and so that, that definitely would be one wave. Um, I surf. Uh, there's another wave. There's a secret wave that was created in the tsunami when the reef came up, and I'm not telling anyone. Um but uh, but if there's a donor that's willing to donate a lot of money, I will take them there. Um, How much and, are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least ten thousand dollars. I couldn't give away that that pearl. Um, I, I've just heard the Indonesian government's planning. Uh, it's a little point break, and it's got this beautiful long beach. But they're planning the second Bali there. So I hope hope that doesn't happen. But um, uh so that's in that's in and i can't tell where that is but uh, my third break would be um well there's a lot it's tough uh well probably a, some of the breaks around bali are still some of the world's i think um yeah you know so there's there's breaks on the east coast of bali that i really really like there's a break called elevators on the east coast yeah. which just seems to suit my surfing um and so yeah there's still a places in bali although it's crowded and even the koreans are surfing before we left there there uh yeah that was the number one kind of that plane loads of koreans are coming surfing so bali's getting very crowded but it's still a beautiful place with some of the world's best waves for sure yeah Amazing. So, when, when you when are you planning on getting back there? As soon as I can. As soon as a, as soon as it's a regular plane out. <laughs> so yeah. you really need to get out. I mean, I got out because um, you know we 
we needed to carry on and wanted to come home to New Zealand anyway for family reasons. Um, yeah. But my home is Indonesia and I'll be back there as soon as I can. We were a bit yeah. concerned about social unrest, but, you know, the the Balinese culture, they take care of each each other. And it, as you see, it's more in America um, who have forgotten, obviously, how to care for each other. Uh, yeah. And um, and the Balinese seem to have been doing it really right. The, uh, the stories that I hear from my friends who are still there, you know, they they uh, there's a lot of volunteerism, making sure everyone's fed, um, because obviously eighty percent of the uh, economy is tourism and it's completely collapsed. So there are yeah. there's a lot of unemployment and a lot of poverty arising, uh, and will be so until. Till the tourism returns, which probably isn't till next year. Um, so yeah, this got some real needs there, but they're taking care of it, and um, and they will continue to do so. So mm. there's no real reason to be concerned, up other than they don't really have the virus controlled yet. Well, fingers crossed they can they'll be able to, you know, keep keep it at bay or it doesn't spread at least. Hmm. Yeah, so that's what we're we, we'll go back as soon as we it's safe to do so. As soon as you can. Well, Dr. Dave Jenkins, uh, I'm a, I'm wary. This is this is a this is a long conversation, and and you're you know the sun has come up and the waves are calling. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm going to say a huge thank you for your time and and what an amazing effort. And if I had uh, if I had some kind of button for some stadium kind of cheer, I think I'd press it and turn it up as loud as possible for. Uh, for your efforts in your lifetime. Uh, it's amazing to be able to have the opportunity to chat to you and have you on this, um, on this podcast. And um, I would love to, you know, casually bump into you with 10 grand in my back pocket so you can show us this, this break someday. <laughs> okay. It's a deal, Jim. You give me 10 grand. <laughs> I will take you there. That, that actually sounds like my new life goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks cool. for the opportunity, Jim. No problem. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers, Dave. An excerpt from this interview also appears in our forthcoming print edition, which lands exclusively with subscribers on June 25th. The issue focuses on the role that myths and legends play across the surfing world, taking in tales from the Caribbean, the Baltic Sea, the Emerald Isle, and beyond. While many of the tales told are designed simply to enliven and entertain, for us, Dr. Dave's account stood out as a true testament to the transformative power of good storytelling. To pre-order your copy, subscribe now at wavelengthmag.com.